Hi, everybody. Art Barter with the Servant Leadership Institute. Got a great, great individual, Mike Robbins, with us today. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm good, Art. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good to have you, Mike. Your most recent work is we're all in this together. Mike has a passion for leadership. He helps companies with leadership development, has a great servant's heart, and wants to help people mm. and add value to people. And we thought that this would be a good match for Mike to come on and share some thoughts with us, especially in today's environment. So great to have you, Mike. Um, well, it's an honor. Tell people a little about your, about your journey. I know that that leadership passion came a little bit later in life. So why don't you just share with them a little bit about your, your route to where you, you found your, well, is it, is it good to say your real passion? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, okay. I got, I got interested in some things actually at a young age related to it, but it took a little while for it to manifest because my life art all growing up was focused on baseball. So I grew uh -huh. up here in the San Francisco Bay area where I still live and I was a baseball player, loved it, was pretty good at it. Actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. Oh, um, wow. Wow. Yeah, didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford. So I go to Stanford, play there. Oh, cool. Yep. Then got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals, and I did sign a contract at that point. And as you know, and probably most people listening know, you get drafted by a major league team. You got to go into the minor leagues, right? So I go in the minor leagues. I'm trying to work my way up to get to the major leagues. Unfortunately for me, my third season still in the minors, I went out to pitch one night, threw one pitch, tore ligaments in my elbow, blew my arm out. It was, was done, huh? Wow. Well, wow. yeah, I mean, I was, I was 23 when I got hurt. I had two surgeries, three surgeries, sorry, over the next two years and finally was forced to retire at the age of 25, but had started playing baseball when I was seven. Wow. And, you know, so as you can imagine, I mean, I was personally devastated, right? I mean, this had been my dream, my passion, my, you know, everything for me. But the thing that I had become really interested in, in addition to the game, I mean, I love the game itself, but by the time I got to college and I was playing professionally, I was really interested in team dynamics because I was on some teams sometimes or we had really good talent, but the team wasn't very good. Yep. Uh, right? Yep. It was like, you know, egos and coaching and whatever. There just was something that didn't work. And then I was on some other teams where, you know, the talent was decent, not great, but the team was fantastic. We would like beat other teams that had better players than we did, which didn't totally make sense, but I, I liked it. I didn't understand it, but I was right, like, right. You know, we talked a little bit about, we called it team chemistry. No mm -hmm. one knew, knew exactly what that was, but you knew when you had it and you definitely knew when you didn't have it. And it wasn't just some warm, fuzzy, touchy-feely thing. It like made a difference in terms of not only how we performed as a team, but I also noticed as an individual, it was always easier for me to succeed when I was on a team with good chemistry. So anyway, I, I leave baseball. I come back home to the Bay Area where I grew up. I get a job working in the late 90s for an internet company in sales. And I figure the tech world and the business world would be really different than the sports world. And it was. But I noticed, oh, that team chemistry thing that I erroneously thought was a sports thing. I was like, that's right. not a sports thing. That's a uh -huh. human thing, right? We just, in, yep. business, in business, we just call it culture. And a lot of it comes down to the leadership and ultimately the relationships amongst the team members. And I started to see this and it started to connect some dots for me. And after a few years working for a few different tech companies, I started my consulting business actually 20 years ago, really with this curiosity of what does it take to create that kind of team chemistry and culture? And mm -hmm. I wanted to learn, I wanted to study, I wanted to understand. And what I immediately became aware of, of course, as you know, and everybody listening knows is leadership's a fundamental aspect of that. Right. Yep. Not simply just the manager, the person in charge, although that's part of it. It's like, how does everybody show up as a leader? How can we be of service to each other, to what we're doing, to whatever customers or clients that we're serving? And ultimately, you know, I've written five books. This is my most recent one. We're all in this together. It's kind of a culmination of 
the last two decades of my life and a lot of the different things I've learned about leadership and teamwork and culture. I got to share with you. I'm, I'm a big fan of Coach Wood. Okay. Uh, I, awesome. I, went to Cal, I went to Cal State Fullerton. Did you okay. ever... Did you ever compete in the College they, World Series with Cal State they, Fullerton? They beat me personally and us in 1995 in oh, the College that right? World Series. No, it's all right. We had some good battles with those guys. When I was there, they had a guy named Mark Kotze, who was their best player, and Jeremy Giambi, who's Jason's younger brother. They won the national championship in 95 when they beat us in Omaha in the College World Series. But gotcha, we always gotcha. we always played them every year, either down at their place or up at ours. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Great program. Yeah. And, you know, Coach Wooden, I've had Bill Walton at a couple of conferences, and he, he's amazing. And I don't know. Do you remember Brad Holland? Mm, I don't. Uh, he played for the Lakers for a couple of years, but he played okay. at UCLA. Okay. And he started there just as Coach Wooden was retiring. And okay. so he, he witnessed the transition between a very successful leader to somebody who has to pick up that legend and move on with it. Right. Yeah. You know, Coach Wooden, he, he would always find the gift of a player and really focus on that gift. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and the thing, one of the amazing things about John Wooden, when you think about it, and you know it, being a, a student of his or paying attention, is that John Wooden, on the one hand, was super old school, right? right and on yep. the other hand, was one of the first people really to mainstream the idea of culture in a way that not only made sense in sports, but in business. And right, I love exactly. the, co the combination of when you listen to and read a lot of things that Coach Wooden talked about, it's like he was very clear, he was very disciplined, he was very old school, but there was this sense of, Hey, we're not, this isn't about winning. This is about mm -hmm. the way we play. This is about how you show up at practice and at games and like doing the right thing and being of service and all of these things that you and I yep. and many other people like us talk about, but he was talking about this and oh, they happen to be the greatest college basketball team in the history of college basketball. Exactly. Because of the way that they operated and how he, you know, led that program incredibly. Yeah. I used to sneak away from Cal State Fullerton and go up there and watch. Yeah. Sneak into the gym up there and uh, as a student, and we just loved to watch that team perform. Amazing. Um, yeah, and they were always so much better than everybody else, and yet they didn't have one individual standout. There was always three or four of them that just – Right. Yeah. Just well, and it was, so. it's fun. It's interesting. You know, I, I listened to so one of I'm a huge basketball fan, in addition to being obviously a baseball fan. Oh, you I are. Played, okay. And I grew up here in the Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland. I'm a big Golden State Warriors fan. So, of course, the Warriors being good for the last number of years, which surprised a lot of us. And we, they were bad for so long. We didn't really know what to do with ourselves. But I'm a big fan of both Steve Kerr, who's their coach who actually uh -huh. talks about going to Poly Pavilion as a teenager growing up in L.A. and watching, you know, yes. the Bruins play. And then ultimately he got to play for Lute Olson at Arizona, and then he played for Phil Jackson and for Greg Popovich in the NBA. And it's like the influence – if you listen to him talk about leadership and talk about culture, it's really powerful because he's been a student of that for so many years. And the other thing that I find fascinating – again, if everyone's listening and you're not a basketball fan or specifically a Warriors <laughs> yeah. fan, my apologies – but. The other thing that I often use the Warriors as an example, I mean, even back to the John Wooden days at UCLA, but the Golden State Warriors have done something really interesting in the last number of years with their success. And as much attention and as much money as the players make and as much as the NBA, which I absolutely love, is very much focused on individual stars. Exactly, yep. They've been able to really create a culture that's more about their team and their star that started and still is there, Steph Curry, who happens to be my favorite player, not only do I love the way he plays the game, but there's a way in which Steph Curry operates as he knows how good he is, but he also knows he's just a member of the team. Exactly. And yep. to me, he's a great example of servant leadership 
from a player standpoint, if you're a superstar, if you're the top performing salesperson, if you're whoever, but you can actually operate as a member of the team and people see that, that sets a tone for everybody. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So let's go into your book because yep. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by some of the uh, language you use. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples is, you know, we like to help people understand, build trust, of course, but to do that, you have to create this safe environment to do yep. that. Yep. But you use an interesting word when you talk about that and yes. share with us a little bit about how you look at creating that safe environment. Well, so the idea of, of trust is so important, as you know, right? And one of the things I've learned in the last few years by studying the work of Professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School, she has this whole body of work she's created over the last couple of decades called psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And I became aware of her work about five, five-ish years ago when Google did this study that got a lot of attention. There was a big piece in the New York Times about it called Project Aristotle. They spent three years studying, and Google's been a client of ours for the last decade, but they spent three years studying what are the necessary components to create high performance for teams. And mm -hmm. after their three-year-long study, they came back with these findings, and the number one component they found that was most important was what they called psychological safety. And when I'm reading this, I'm like, what the heck is that? So right, I started yeah. thinking, what does that mean exactly? And I dig more into it, and it's like, well, basically, Professor Edmondson came up with this idea, essentially, that what's necessary for teams is group trust, that the team is safe enough for what? For risk-taking, for disagreement, for you know, challenge, for even for failure. Not that any of us wanna fail, but if we're on a team where there's that sense of psychological safety, I can take a risk, I can fail. You and I don't have to see eye to eye on everything. I'm not gonna get shamed, ridiculed, kicked out of the group for simply making a mistake. I think back right. to my sports days, right? It's like there were times I gave up the game-winning home run and you know, blew the game. If yep. my teammates shunned me and shamed me, all of a sudden, it's like the next time I went out to compete, I'm going to be 10 times more stressed out and nervous thinking, oh, they don't like me. They don't trust me. They don't think I'm any good. You know, yep. so how do we create an environment where we want to perform at the highest level, but we give people the space to say, you know what? It's okay to fail here. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to not everybody look and act and talk exactly the same way because that's part of what makes a great team. So I like to make the distinction between trust is a one-to-one -one phenomenon. So for right. leaders, it's important to build trust with individuals. Group trust is that sense of psychological safety that the group is safe enough for those things to happen. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that safe environment involves, I mean, we can talk physical safety today in COVID-19. Right. Sure. I mean, we've locked down our, our facility here. We're yep. cleaning four or five times a day. We're, yep. we're probably the cleanest we've ever been, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so we, there's that part of it. But then yep. the psychological safety and helping people understand that it's okay to ask questions regardless of what right. it is. It's okay to fail. It's okay to struggle. Uh, yeah. And it's okay to ask for help. Absolutely. And from a leadership standpoint, you know, or when I'm talking to leaders about this, most people understand, yeah, this is important. We want people to take risks. We want people to ask for help. We want people... And the best thing that a leader can do to create that sense of psychological safety is to model all of those things themselves. Because yeah. it's one thing to say, hey, ask me anything you want or admit if you make a mistake, it's okay, don't worry about it. But then my question often is, well, do you do that? Oh, well, no, or what, you know, because it's, yeah, right. it's, exactly. it's scary and it's vulnerable as a leader to say, I screwed this up or I made a mistake or I need some help or I don't really know exactly how to work this out or whatever the yeah. case may be. And over the last few months, as we've been going through the pandemic, so many of us, even if we have some experience and we've been around, like we're dealing with a whole set of circumstances we've never dealt with before. Right. So again, how we approach that in a lot of ways creates 
the model, if you will, for what people feel safe to do. I say to leaders all the time, if you're not willing to be open and be vulnerable yourself, it's not impossible for the people around you to do that. It just makes it 10 times harder if you're not modeling it. Yep, exactly. And you know, Mike, there's times when, you know, I have the CEO title at the, at the end of my name and that right. those three letters scare people. Of right? course. And when you get into a leadership meeting and all of a sudden it gets quiet in the room or it's only one or two people talking, you know that you have impacted that group and it's not yeah. safe for them. And so yeah. I actually get up and leave the room Yeah. and let them go figure things out. And then I don't go back into the room until I'm invited back in. <laughs> That's you great. Know, because I want that, that safe feeling so they can go address the real problems. Yeah. Because a lot of times just having that CEO person in the room doesn't create that safe psychological environment. So that's yeah. why I love the, the, the words that you use because it's easier to understand. Well, I, I think that's really great. It's great self-awareness on your part. And to notice and pay attention, does it seem like there's a certain lack of safety or people aren't really being open? Maybe I leave the room or in this case, <clears throat> a lot of us are you know connecting on Zoom or maybe I just get right. off the Zoom call and say, hey, you all talk amongst yourselves. Let me know when you want me to come back. You know, another thing that I find, here's an example though of something that often leaders don't see is what can actually get in the way of psychological safety is something like joking around or even being sarcastic, which we all see as relatively benign and funny and fun, ha ha ha. Right. But what yep. happens is, right? And again, I learned this way back as an athlete men do this a lot to each other as men, but we all do this irrespective of gender is that we joke about each other or we laugh at each other or we make fun of each other. And it seems like it's all in good fun and we're not really being mean about it. But what happens is if I admit, oh, I made this mistake or I don't know this or this is hard for me or stressful for me and someone then makes a joke about it, all of a sudden what's going to happen is I'm not going to share that the next time because I don't want to be the butt of any joke, right? And most of us as human beings, you know, some of us are a little more sensitive than others, but in general, I'll often stop in the middle of a meeting if I'm facilitating it when it starts to get a little goofy and sarcastic and I'll just stop and say, hey, look, it's okay to do this. I'm not trying to be the sarcasm police, but if we do that with each other, just know that at least some of us, if not all of us, are gonna hold back because we don't wanna get made fun of. Exactly. And so part of a leader's job, I was actually listening to, to bring up Steve Kerr again, he and and Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, have a podcast they've been doing recently during the pandemic called Flying Coach. And they had Brene Brown actually on as a guest for the podcast. And they were talking about, and she had come in, her work's all about vulnerability. And she had come in and done some work with the Seattle Seahawks. And Pete Carroll said on the podcast, you know, I got to do a better job of calling it out when my guys start making fun of each other. Right. Especially right. if someone's being vulnerable, because that makes it less safe. And then people aren't going to really share their real feelings or what's going on. So part of the leader's job is to both model it, but also respectfully, if we start to see things that are getting in the way of that psychological safety, to call it out and try to stop it so that the environment stays as safe as possible. Right, right. And you talk about focusing on inclusion and belonging. Yeah. And you've kind of touched on that already. Including people is one thing. Right. But how do we get them to feel like they belong as part of the team? It's, look, it's, it's hard work. And I think, I mean, part of that, that particular pillar in the book is about looking at issues of diversity, issues also of inclusion. And again, you're right, including is one thing. And the idea with inclusion, if you really think about it, is in general, again, you as a CEO or with leaders, it's like, how do we make sure we are inclusive of everybody, regardless of their role, regardless of their title, their background, their identity, if they've been with us for three weeks or three years or 30 years. And look, we all understand there's hierarchy inside of organizations, right? Not There's mm-hmm. only one CEO, there's a leadership team. And however, can we do and say things that are as inclusive as possible so we're not consciously excluding people? However, the ultimate goal of a lot of focuses that we have around inclusion 
is that we want to create an environment where people really feel like they belong. Because if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, right, we go from, you know, physiological needs to safety needs. The third part of his pyramid, we get sort of halfway up is the need to belong before we get to esteem and self-actualization. And that need to belong is fundamental as humans. It doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are. It doesn't matter our race, our gender, our background. Like we all have a need to belong. And so to your question, it's challenging to create an environment where everyone feels like they belong. But part of a leader's job, and particularly from a servant leader perspective, is looking at my job is to serve the team, to serve the clients, customers, the community, but in service of how do I and how do we create an environment where everyone feels like they belong in their a contributing and full member of the team. Right. And some of that is, again, not everyone's going to tell you as the CEO that they don't feel like they belong. So you got to sort of search it out and look and listen and pay attention and empower your leaders. Hey, if there's anything that's going on that's having people feel like they don't belong, ultimately, we got to try to work that out because this team, whether the team has three people or 30 people or 30,000 people, a lack of belonging is going to create disconnection is going to create conflict within the team in a way that ultimately is going to pull people in different directions. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're touching on something that everybody is different. Some people yep. will feel belong with not a lot of effort because they, they, you know, they want to be there. Others have been hurt right? in groups they, they felt belong to. Yep. And so you, may, you have to meet them where they are and help them get past those hurdles. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, if you think about it too, from the standpoint of, you know, just listening to and understanding where people are coming from. And the truth of the matter is, again, look, every team is diverse in the sense that we have different personalities, we have different needs, we have different, right? And that's part of, you know, this and leadership is is tricky because you can't manage everyone the same way. Not everybody, like I'm motivated by one thing, you're motivated by something else. I mean, think about even in the pandemic and working from home in a lot of cases, some people, if you're more introverted and depending on your personality, your kind of work, some people have been, this is great. I don't have to deal with a bunch of stuff. I don't have to interact with people. I can just get my work done. Other people, if you're more extroverted or you have a certain type of personality or role, people have been going crazy. And so again, if you think about it from a leadership standpoint, there's not a right or wrong in there. It's just, oh, how do I make sure I'm connecting with and engaging with all the people on my team one-on-one? But also, how do we create a sense of community, which is harder to do in a virtual environment, where people feel connected to each other and that we belong to something important? That's also where mission, vision, values come in. Because the truth of the matter is, we want to belong to something, especially in today's world, that matters to us, that is making an impact in the world. Everyone has to have a job to pay the bills, right? But it's like, am I part of something that I can contribute to and also I feel like is contributing to the larger world in some way? Everybody's looking for that higher purpose. What we found in the younger generations, when they don't find that, guess what? They're going to go looking for it. Yeah. They're not going to hang around like I did for 10, 15 years, right? (laughs) In a a company. So it's a very interesting environment. And I'll share with you the Zoom thing. I I would do Zoom and webinars every now and then electronically. I did a couple of leadership developments through the computer. And I'm standing here in a room by myself talking to a whole room full of people. (laughs) I can't interact with them. It drives me nuts. I know. Right? But, you know, this is this is the way to communicate today. It uh, is. Yeah, it's, it is yeah. challenging. I mean, I, I jokingly say to my wife, Michelle, a lot that, you know, I've been in this game, so to speak, for a long time. And, if, you know, I was a left-handed pitcher when I played baseball. And I say to Michelle, it's like, I'm playing the same game. It's just now they're asking me to pitch with my right hand. And it's yeah, right. very different. Like, the skills are different. But the essence of it, you think about it from a communication standpoint, but also from a team and leadership standpoint, the essence of what's needed is still the same. The platform has changed and created challenge and stress for a lot of us, understandably, because Uh a lot of things that we would cue off of being with other people in the same room 
we can't queue off of in the same way. However, exactly. at, the, at the same time, you know, as you know, this given your work and, and the focus of what you do, it's like leadership and connecting with people is more important than ever, even though it's more challenging right now, just because there's so much separation and isolation that people have been dealing with. Yeah. And, and the flip side of that, I think it's helped people drop their shields a little bit because yeah. half the time you want to know if everybody on the meeting is wearing shorts, <laughs> you got shorts and flip flops on or, you know, cause yes. and, and you wouldn't have that if you were meeting here at home. So it kind of, Loosens things up and creates an environment that you couldn't do in a boardroom, right? It's yeah. it's true. I mean, I do think in some ways, as odd as this has been, we've also we're literally zooming into people's homes and their lives and their their dogs and their kids and their flip flops yeah. and the, the whole bit, right? I mean, and and you know, we've all learned a little bit of where we can try to set ourselves up in the house or if we're working from home or some of us are now going back to work in the office. But I do think there's a way in which it's created even more a sense of authenticity and transparency and connection with what life is really like. And again, and, if so, and, and understanding without getting nosy and personal into people's lives, if someone lives alone versus if they're married versus if they have young children, older children, aging parents, you name, I mean, whatever the circumstances of life. Someone said to me the other day when I was talking to them about this, he said, I, I, never, I can never remember a time and maybe there's never been a time in my life and just about everybody's life that I know that things at home and at work and in the world are so unstable and uncertain that it's mm -hmm. like it's like sometimes we go through that personally right and we're having some something significant but usually if things at work are really crazy things at home are relatively stable or right. things at home are kind of crazy things at work are stable or the world or it's usually not everything all at once and oh by the way it's everybody so it's mm -hmm. like you know I, I joke you know you and i both live in california it's like it's like we have an earthquake every day right the earth right. yeah exactly yep. underneath us and it's like whoa, whoa what <laughs> What just happened? I, I was just getting settled and it kept, it just changed again and it right. changed again and it changed again. And so, I mean, this is a time for, I love that saying, you know, circumstances don't define us, they reveal us. Right, exactly. And this, this is revealing for a lot of us, you know, both areas where maybe we have some strength, but also areas where oh, I could use some growth and development in that area right. because, right. you know, this is hard. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, and I love this, this wording too. You talk about embracing the sweaty palmed conversations. Yes. So this right? is, this and is, I, and yeah. I read that for the first time. I went, I know exactly what Mike's <laughs> right. talking about. Totally. Well, so this is the third of the four pillars in the book. And so this comes from our conversation I had with a mentor of mine years ago. He said to me, Mike, you know, what stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people. I said, what's that? He said, it's probably a 10 minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. Mm -hmm. He said, if you get good at those 10 minute sweaty palm conversations, you'll have fantastic relationships. Yep. He said, but if you do like most of us and you avoid them, cause you know, they can be awkward or uncomfortable or people get upset or you put your foot in your mouth or sometimes it makes it worse before it gets better or, you know. Mm -hmm. He said, then you'd, you'll sort of be a victim of who you live with, who you work with. He's like, but if you lean into the discomfort of them, have them sooner rather than later. You'll talk about the elephant in the room. You'll address the issue sooner rather than later. You'll work through conflicts. You'll give feedback. You'll take feedback. You'll, you'll learn a lot. And, and when he said it to me, I remember thinking at the time, oh, gosh, I don't really yeah. like that. However, and all these years later, I still don't love having those conversations. But uh, yep. you and I both know and everybody listening knows it's like having them is almost always better than not having them, even though they're uncomfortable. Like mm -hmm. the rare occasion that we blow something up and it gets way worse, it does happen, but way more often than not, when we're willing to have the conversation, we get to a deeper level of understanding, we eliminate the stress of holding on to something, 
we talk about the things that need to be talked about. And what's amazing when you think about it from a leadership standpoint, but also a team standpoint, when the more we do that, the more we sort of build the muscle of our, ourselves as well as in the individual relationship, as well as on the team where we can have those conversations. And we know, you know what? Yeah, they might be a little painful and uncomfortable, but nobody's going to die. We're all going to learn something. We're probably going to build some more trust and some new ideas will come out. And then we don't have to waste a lot of time walking on eggshells and beating around exactly. the bush. Right. Well, and think about how much time and energy we waste mulling over things in our head or stressing about it and not talking about it. It's like, I always joke, it's like you finally have that conversation after a week or a month or however long you've, and then you have it and you're like, oh my gosh, why didn't I have that a long time ago? Like that took up a lot of emotional space on my emotional hard drive that exactly. I could have used for something else. And so anyway, but it's a, it's a practice and it's doing it respectfully doing it with a sense of care and empathy, but also a sense of truth. It's a fine balance, you know, because I think sometimes we'll either err on, some of us know we err on the side of being blunt and kind of brutal about things, which can cause issues. And others of us, more often than not, we err on the side of being really nice. Sometimes, you know, and I'd love your thoughts on this. People talk about servant leadership, and sometimes I think they mean that means being nice all the time, which oh. I don't actually think that's what it means at all. No. But I think that's what no. sometimes we hear. Oh, I'm going to be a servant leader. I'm just going to show up and be nice to everybody. I'm not ever going to challenge anybody. I'm not going to give anyone any feedback. It's like, yeah, no, I don't think that's what we're actually talking about. Right. When we first get it started, you know, I can get emotional. I'm a human being, so I'm yeah. going to get emotional. Sure. And one of the, our folks in the company said, you know, Art, you need to be calm all the time. You have to have the same level of <laughs> volume in your voice, the same pitch. And I'm going, if I have to do that, I'm going to fall asleep. Yeah, exactly. Right? But what I told him, I said, you know, if, if that's what you expect, let me tell you right now, I'm going to fail you <laughs> as a leader. Right. Because I'm not perfect. I can't be someone that I'm not. Yeah. But, you know, people ask me all the time, it's the same thing. You know, well, certainly it's fuzzy and feel good. And I say, you know what? When you launch out to change the culture in your company, you can't put payroll checks on hold. You can't put getting results on hold. So you're trying to change a culture, mentor people, meet them where they are, help them grow individually. You still have to get results because you still have responsibility for everybody in the company. Yeah. And that's the most difficult thing I've done as a leader. Yeah, is change a culture and get results at the same time. Right. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of awareness and to really be of service. I mean, look, in some ways, when you think about it, what's easier, although not anywhere nearly as effective as you and I both know, especially in today's world, is just to run around and tell everybody what to do, right? Like right. do this and do that and do this. It just doesn't empower anybody. It creates a terrible culture. Nobody wants to work there. People don't trust you. You know, people aren't empowered. Right. But if we w literally just wanted to be like, what's the most expedient? If we're relatively smart and we have some experience, I'm just going to walk around and tell everybody what to do and have them go do it. And then we'll, you know, but if it were that easy, we would do that. It's not. And it also doesn't create an environment where people can grow and people are empowered. And ultimately, exactly. you know, more voices are heard. And, and as smart as any of us might be or as much experience as we might have, we're limited to just what's going on in our own mind or That's in our it. own heart. And the, the whole beauty and, and magic of a team is that so many things become available when everyone's strengths are, are able to, to shine and to thrive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So with the time we got left, the last pillar in your book is care about and challenge each other. And, yep. and I'm going to transition that into the last podcast you posted about today's events. And you gave people some ideas of what to do during this time frame. And I was really fascinated by, I think you were talking about listening. 
Yeah. I know some people, Vicki Clark, wonderful lady, serves nonprofits, serves in leadership, a servant leader. We've known each other for a long time. And she's black and she started a group. And you know yeah. what? I'm going to join the group. Yeah. But I shouldn't participate. Mm. This is a time for me to learn and grow. So share with our audience some of the thoughts you have in today's environment. What What's some of the things we can do? Well, look, I think what we do right now does have to some degree has to do with who we are, the role we play in our company in the world. I mean, look, our, our race, you and I are both white men, our yep. gender, our background has a lot to do with how we can show up in this moment with what's going on in our country. And to pay attention, like, obviously, a lot of people are in pain. There's some significant things being unearthed and brought forth that many of us, even those of us who think we're paying attention, are probably, at least I know this is for me, oh, wow, there's a, there's a deeper level of what's going on than I was even aware of. So part of it, what we can do right now, if we're interested and we want to be of service and we want to be part of the change, is to listen and learn from other people's experiences because that's mm -hmm. so important all the time, but especially right now to really listen to people who've lived a different experience than we have, who've studied things maybe that we haven't studied to listen and understand more from the sense of growth and development and then how we can create an even more inclusive environment for our teams, our families, our organizations, our communities. I was listening to Brene Brown actually was saying this thing that one of her mantras when she talks about this or thinks about this is, I'm here to get it right, not to be right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so from that standpoint, you think about yourself as a CEO or even yourself listening to the woman that you talked about just a moment ago, it's like, oh, maybe there are moments in life that the, a big part of being a servant leader is actually shutting up and listening to other people, right? Mm -hmm. And for many of us, I know this is a challenge for me because I talk a lot and I talk for a living. It's literally what I do. <laughs> my, my wife and my daughter say, dad, gosh, you talk so much. And I'm like, well, you know, if I didn't talk so much, we'd all have a problem as a family, but that's a separate yeah, right. issue. Yeah. Um, but again, can, can we really listen? Can we get curious? Curiosity is such an incredible antidote for self-righteousness and defensiveness, right? being yeah. curious. Like, wow, tell me more, or I'd love to listen. Or even, you know, what I've noticed myself even is being having people call me out on stuff recently and just in general. Look, nor the normal tendency for most of us as a human is to get a bit defensive and, hey, wait a minute, but then to stop and listen. Well, tell me more about why you're saying that or how I can understand that and have more empathy for whatever that is. So I, I think listening and learning is so important to servant leadership, but I also think it's so important, especially in this moment right now, for those of us that want to be part of the solution and part of positive change, even and especially if we don't know how and it feels overwhelming, which at times it does for me, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot we can learn by just paying attention. Yeah. Now you mentioned you were a left-handed pitcher. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you write left-handed as well? You know, it's funny. I was left-handed athletically. So shoot left-handed, throw left-handed, hit left-handed, kick a ball at left-footed and, you know, bowl, you name it. But in life, I do everything else right. I write with my right hand, mm -hmm. brush my teeth. When I had hair, I used to brush my hair with my right hand. I mean, so... So I'm, I'm a right-handed human, but a left-handed athlete, if that makes oh, sense. I, yeah, it does. It does. You know, somebody explained, I was reading something a couple of days ago. You know, they talked about a world for right-handers. Yes. Not for left-handers. Right. 
And I thought, okay, well, that's pretty interesting because in my mid-20s, I cut my fingers and I had this stitched and bandaged for probably two months. And I had to yeah. write with my left hand. Yeah. And, you know, that was pretty difficult. Tough, right? And, and it was an example of, think about it from, I don't have the experience that a Vicki Clark has or you right. have. Right. I need to listen and understand how they feel and get that empathy that you were talking about. Yeah. But how do I relate that to my world and that right left hand where the world is really made for the right hand person? Yep. And not for the left hand? I went, okay, I, now I have a different perspective. Totally. It's such a great example because again, for most of us, you know, most of us as right-handers, I think that, I think it's around 10 or 15% of the population roughly is left-handed. So it actually in some ways maps percentage wise to the black population in America, if we're just using that as an mm -hmm. example, right? And if you use it as an example, I think if you're right-handed, you walk through the world and you don't think about being right-handed, you're just right-handed and most everything is geared for right-handers, you know, in school, the desks or the scissors or whatever. But mm -hmm. if you're left-handed, you know you live in a right-handed world and you have to adjust to being left-handed. Now, most left-handed people, again, I still relate as a lefty, even though I was a left-handed pitcher athlete, you know, most left-handed people aren't bitter about it. They're just like, right. but of it. It's like, well, it's just the way it is. It's kind of annoying. I just make some adjustments. I turn the other way. I write the other way. I do the thing I need to do, but very aware. And so I've heard that example explained again, when we think about gender or we think about race, or we think about if, if we find ourselves, any of us who are in sort of dominant groups, right? Then, oh, the world that we live in here in America was sort of designed for me and you. And therefore, I don't know what it's like to walk around the world in a female body or as a black person or as a person of color, anything. And it's like, oh, wonder what that's like. Maybe I can start paying more attention and learning and listening and seeing, oh, that experience must be different than my experience. Right, right. You know, I mean, whatever it is, I think about this sometimes on more benign things, you know, back to the basketball thing. I think about, can you imagine being Shaquille O'Neal and trying to just move around the world like things aren't built for someone his size, right? Right, that, exactly. That would, that would be a thing to have to manage, that he's like, you know, seven feet tall and as big as he is, it's like, how does he just move around and get into cars and think, you know, again, most of us don't have to think about that because that's not a reality in our life. But again, it, it can give us some perspective and give us some more empathy. And that's what leadership is about is trying as best we can, even though it's always imperfect, is how can I get into other people's shoes? How can right. I see it from their perspective? Because exactly. if I can see it from other people's perspectives, that can help inform the decisions that I make, the things that I say, and how I operate. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. You know, we like to say serve the life, not the ideology. Yeah. Right. And do it from your heart. And the sweaty palm conversations that we have is, you know, it really takes that courage to help someone change their heart. Yes. But before you do that, you've got to change your own heart. Totally. Right. And, you know, that's the tough thing leaders, I think, have a hard time understanding. If they're not, you mentioned it earlier, if they're not willing to change, they right. can't ask their people to change. Well, and, right? absolutely. and you know, what's another big one, I think, today with what's going on, too. In the last few years, especially, we've been talking more about privilege in our culture in a way that the word privilege has, has, has turned into this almost a you know, a slur, you have privilege, you have, and, and when I first started hearing about privilege, I remember thinking to myself, this is my honest reaction, like privilege, whether it's white privilege or male privilege or leadership privilege or whatever privilege, I, I thought in my head, like privilege meant you're like a Rockefeller or a Vanderbilt or do you know what I mean? Like, that's what I heard. Yeah. One of the things I put in my book, I found this high school teacher, I found this online, a, a lesson that he teaches in his class on privilege, the understanding of it is he, he passes out a blank piece of paper, a blank piece of paper to every kid in the class and they're sitting in rows in their desks and he says, crumple up this piece of paper and what I want you to do, he puts a garbage can up in the front of the class by the board and he says, this can represent success, making it in our 
you know, American culture. Each of you have a shot. I want you to shoot your ball from your desk and see if you can make it in the can. And if you make it, you've made it. If you miss, sorry, nice try. Yeah. You're gonna, and immediately the kids, especially in the back of the room, say, hold on a second, this isn't fair. Because right. the kids up front have an easier shot than us in the back. And then he stops and he goes, okay, let's just stop for a minute and take a look at this, right? Yep. It's a land of opportunity. Everybody has a shot. Yeah. But let's be honest, some of the shots are easier than others. And those of you sitting in the front row, your first thought was probably not, oh, I got the easiest shot. You're thinking, how am I going to make it? Because it's not like it's a slam dunk. You still got to make the shot. Right. So he explains right. that he's like, look, life is that way that some of us have more privilege and opportunity than others. And the truth is we all still have to work hard in order to make the shot but some shots are more difficult than others. And if you have more privilege than less privilege, one of the things you can choose to do, if you want to, is help those that may have less privilege. And he says, I end the lesson by talking about education as a privilege. Not everybody in the world gets an education, so you get to choose what you do with your education. And when I read that, similar to the handedness thing, I thought to myself, what a great way to explain privilege, because I think sometimes we have this argument back and forth of like, well, just because I might have some privilege, like most leaders I know have worked really hard to get into those positions. Yeah. And once you're there, you have an enormous amount of privilege and power and influence. And what are you going to do with that? And it doesn't diminish your success by saying, oh, well, you know what? It helped that you had some privilege and now you've created some. Do you know what I mean? I think we hear it as like this either or, but in reality, it can be both. I can acknowledge my own privilege and also acknowledge, you know what? I've worked pretty hard and overcome a lot of stuff to get to where I am. And both of those things can be true at the same time. And then the question becomes from a servant leadership perspective is, what am I willing to use my privilege or my power or my influence for? Exactly. You know, you want to focus on others or is it all about yourself? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And look, it's, it's tricky in the culture in which we live. I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of information and influence coming at us that tells us directly or indirectly, focus on yourself. Look right. out for yourself. Take care of yourself, your family. You know, especially we go through this uncertain time and people are losing their jobs and companies are very successful companies really struggling there's a tendency, right? You go down to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. It's like, uh-oh, physiological needs, safety needs. Servant leadership, again, as we've been talking about, and you know this even better than I do, is more important and more challenging than ever right now. It's what's needed in our world. But right. there's a tendency, right? Like I had to check myself a few months ago as all this started to happen. Like, uh-oh, what's going to happen with the business? <laughs> and then start moving up the, the, the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy. Okay, now I can pay attention to other people and what's going on. But you know, we're all human. Yeah, exactly. Over the years, we've had one person tell us, you know, we're really insulted that you use the word servant. Hmm. And, and, and she was black and she, that meant something to her in a negative right. way. Yeah. We sat and, and talked to her and said, listen, the difference between those times and today's is what's the motive behind it? Right. The motive today is to help people, add right. value to them, help you to grow, help you to move on, not to use you, right? Right. And, That's interesting. And we all have preconceived meanings of what words mean to us sure. based on our experience, our, our psychologically safe zone that you talked about earlier. Right. And, you know, some people will react to negative, but it's all about motive. And today yeah. it's how do we listen to understand that you talked about earlier? Mm -hmm. put ourselves in other people's shoes, create that empathy, create that safe place where people can come together, have disagreements and opinion, and have it be okay to do that. 
yeah and respect and treat each other with dignity yeah. absolutely well and i think hearing from people like that's an i you know when you said that and just hearing that feedback like i could see how someone might have a, an understanding of the word servant and go well that doesn't resonate with me or that almost seems offensive to me or, or whatever the case may be and i and i do think words really matter and i also think it's important for us to learn how to take feedback from people and understand if there are things that we're doing or saying that are having a negative impact is it possible to make a subtle shift so yeah. that, oh, what am I really trying to say? And in the case of like, when I hear servant leadership, what I think of as being of service and serving those, right? But again, the connotation can be different. You know, I was listening to another dialogue re very recently around some of this and even words that we use as compliments. It was actually a group of, of African-American women talking about very successful professional African-American women talking about often getting the compliment after a presentation about how articulate they were. And what mm -hmm. was interesting is the response as I was listening, I was just listening, that I thought of, oh, the thought of someone saying articulate, like that's a relatively positive thing. But a number of these black women were saying to them, it actually came across as an insult. Like, oh, yep. you're surprised that I'm so articulate? What were you expecting? Right. And, and when, when I heard that, I thought, oh, wow, how interesting. Like, that's a really good thing for me to pay attention to, even with good intention, if I were to say something, again, to try to use all of us, to use our own emotional intelligence as well as our cultural intelligence, how is this going to land with the other? Now, we can't read people's minds, you know what I mean? And, and taking our good intention and then turning it into action and things that we do and things that we say, and then being open, being curious, again, wanting to get it right, not be right. Oh, maybe there's another way to say that. Maybe there's another way to do that, you know. I also feel like we can overdo it to the extreme where we're then walking on eggshells and afraid to say or do anything, right. which is not the point. And I say all the time, I had someone actually send me an email earlier today and mention something about something I posted on Facebook and whatever it was. And my response was, thank you for the feedback. I appreciate you calling that out. I'll think about that more deeply. And I'm also working on trying not to micromanage myself so much that I'm parsing every single word that I say that I'm afraid, oh, it's going to upset or offend someone because then, you know, we're not being authentic. We're not really being ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I love sports. You, you came out of the sport. You played sports. You know, there are times when things don't go right on the basketball court or on the field, right? And you might say to, to one of your teammates, get over it. Right? Yeah. Just get over it. Today's environment, if you don't know that person and they don't receive that right, you may mean it as something very, you know, we're just, we're just going back and forth. But the other yes. person in today's environment saying, get over it. Holy smokes. That yes. means something totally different today. Like it actually feeds right back into this fourth pillar of my book, care about and challenge each other. You know, speaking of sports, I actually interviewed my old pitching coach from Stanford is an amazing man who's been a mentor of mine for many years, Dean Stotts. He retired after coaching at Stanford for 37 years. I had him on my podcast about six months ago and we were talking about this and he said, he said to me, and he's kind of an old school guy. I mean, in the same way of like, not mm -hmm. quite old school like John Wooden, but in similar vein, but also really, really kind, really caring, really thoughtful and he said, Mike, my whole philosophy for coaching over all those years was this. He said, I believe that I had to love you hard so I could push you hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, Dean, what do you mean by that? He said, I knew that if I was going to get the most out of you as an athlete and the most out of all the guys I coached and all the teams that I coached, the first thing I had to do was establish that I loved you and cared about you and valued you as a human being. Mm -hmm. irrespective of your talent, irrespective of your performance. But once you knew that and felt that, then I could push you as hard as I needed to push you. Right. 
And, and, and to your point of, of telling people to get over it, like we, some of us have permission in life to tell other people to get over it. Uh -huh. Oftentimes we don't. And, how, and whether it's get over it or any feedback, we have to earn the right to give people feedback. And as a leader, just because you have the title of CEO or VP of this or whatever, you have not earned the right to give me feedback yet until you've proven to me that you actually care about me. Once I know right. that and you continue to demonstrate that, then you can actually be pretty brutally honest with me. And I may not always agree with your feedback, but I'll take it because I know, you know what, he cares about me or she cares about me. They want me to do well. That's why they're saying what they're saying. And you think again, the greatest sports coaches, you see sometimes like they'll get right up in their players' faces, but if they have that kind of relationship, the player will take the pretty harsh feedback and use it to their advantage, not get mad and storm off necessarily. And we can do that in life, whether it's in our families or within our teams, but we have to first and foremost establish and keep committing ourselves to caring about and valuing each other. That opens up not only greater performance, but an ability for us to be really direct with each other in a way that actually benefits all of us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mike, we're coming up on our end time today. <laughs> Man, you've really added value to me and I know you're going to add value to our listeners. So I really appreciate that. Any final words you'd like to share? You know, one of the things in general, this has always been important to me, but I think given the tumultuous nature of what we're going through right now, I really think it's important for all of us to be kind to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, kindness with others is so important and is the one of the foundations of servant leadership, as you know, but I think kindness for others and compassion for others actually starts with compassion for ourselves and kindness mm -hmm. towards ourselves, not from a self-absorbed place, but just the kinder and more compassionate, and more empathetic I am towards myself, the easier it is for me to authentically be that way for each other. And I think for all of us, even though this is a time of great growth and great change, and there's lots of opportunity, it's also been, I know for me and just about everyone I know, really challenging and it continues to be. And I think as we navigate through the challenges, like we don't have to make excuses or feel sorry for ourselves, but it is important to acknowledge, well, this is hard or this is scary or this is stressful. And that doesn't make me weak or bad. It just makes me human. <laughs> and I think the more we can really be that way with ourselves, the, the more effective we're able to be that way with others, which is really what's needed right now, I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mike, thank you so much, man. You have added so much value today. Mm. And I have to tell you something. Don't stop talking fast because everything you said while you're talking fast has really added value. So it was, it was great. So don't, don't, don't change that part of it. Okay. Thank you. I've yeah. tried to slow down over the years. Yeah. It just doesn't yeah. work yeah. for me. So it's just the way I roll. All right. I really appreciate you being here. Everybody that's listening, you know, share this because man, Mike shared a lot of great things for us today, especially for today's environment. So again, Mike, thank you. Your latest book is we're all in this together, creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. Yeah. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Mike-Robbins.com. Okay, great. Mike, thank you again. Really, really enjoyed it. And everybody, remember, serve the life that's in front of you and serve it from your heart. So take care, everybody. Until next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.